The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. How are you, friends? It's time for another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And this time around, I'm going to be pulling out an interview I did with Don McLean. Don McLean was a guest on this podcast, episode number 59. We were talking about his album, Botanical Gardens, which came out last year, 2018. But I had done an interview with Don McLean back in 2011. I wrote him a letter. I didn't hear anything for a short period of time. And then I see this voicemail on my phone. I checked the voicemail, and sure enough, it was Don McLean. He had called a couple days before. I somehow hadn't seen the voicemail. I heard his voice. He said, this is Don McLean. I'd very much like to speak to you. He was the guest on an episode that was both celebrating the 40th anniversary of his album, American Pie, but also eight years of doing the radio show. So that interview aired on FM radio back in 2011, and I've gotten lots of nice compliments from people on it. A great songwriter, Archie Jordan, said that it should be required listening for anyone who's studying or is interested in songwriting. Thank you, Mr. Jordan. That's a really, really nice compliment. Why am I pulling this interview out now? Yesterday, February 3rd, 2019, is the so-called anniversary of the day the music died. In Ohio, a plane carrying three rock and roll musicians, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, crashed. That was February 3rd, 1959. There were some articles yesterday where they were talking with Don McLean. He was talking about what a devastating thing it was when he found out that Buddy Holly had died. He commented in the Des Moines Register, he said, I was crazy about Buddy Holly. I was way into Buddy Holly. Something about him, really. He was my favorite. I listened to his records all the time. He goes on and talks about how the song American Pie wasn't necessarily about the day the music died. It was kind of like a spark that, in my opinion, led to the creation of one of the great songs in American music. McLean went on to comment to the Des Moines Register and say, The song is not about Buddy Holly. It's about America. Well, folks, it was a great honor to interview Don McLean not once, but twice. I'm going to take you to the very first interview back in 2011. I consider Don McLean one of the great American songwriters right up there with Bob Dylan. Enjoy, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Don McLean. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. I wanted to kind of go back a little bit. When you started listening to folk music, what was it that you liked about the Weavers album at Carnegie Hall? Well, I love harmony. There was a lot to be learned by listening to the Weavers, and anybody who likes harmony can learn a great deal from listening to that particular group because they did many different things and they did many different harmony things within uh, one song. One of the things that I learned from listening to them was 
how to build a song that basically had a verse and a chorus from verse to verse. The song got more powerful or reached a sort of a climax, if you will. And it's difficult with a song like that because they kind of drone on one verse after another, one chorus after another. So there were many things also about their instrumentation, the playing, uh, the guitar playing of Fred Hellerman and the 12-string guitar and 5-string banjo playing of Pete Seeger were extremely accomplished. And uh, it was a great deal to learn, especially if you were just you know, starting out in music as I was. You just mentioned Pete Seeger a second ago. I was hoping you could tell the listeners how you met Mr. Seeger and what did he teach you? I was around Pete Seeger from about 1966 until about 1975. And there were good and bad points to being around Pete Seeger. Um, A lot of people are attracted to him, and a lot of people also, after they find out what's going on, they kind of get turned off and walk away. I was very interested in him musically, but I found him to be politically and personally somewhat of a disappointment. I learned a great deal from him musically. Programming songs, how to read the mood of an audience, how to use what's going on in the world and what's going on locally as part of what it is you do as part of your performance to make it a personal experience, not only for the audience, but for you as the artist. Also, just how to pick good songs, songs that have importance to them, whether they're, you know, they may be an important song or they might be just a frivolous song, but they have to be really good and and musical. And also just what not to say, you know, when to keep quiet. The biggest thing I, I learned was that he makes huge mistakes on stage, and it doesn't matter. So that was very liberating. Well, we're here in 2011. It's the 40th anniversary of the album, American Pie. When you began to record that album, did you feel you had a very special record on your hands? I knew I had a very talented producer in Ed Freeman, who was very meticulous and very sensitive toward everything that we were doing. I had just put out an album called Tapestry, which had done very well. Two songs, Castles in the Air and And I Love You So, came from that record, but there were many other songs that were on it. So I was off to a pretty good start, but around the time we made the album, the uh, record company was sold, and we felt we were out of business. So I thought I was going to be just a guy that made one album. Instead, I've made like 40, but none like the American Pie album, of course. Um, So I don't know what we thought, but, you know, we basically hit a home run. Could you pick a favorite song from that album? Uh, Well, that would be, of course, American Pie. I mean, it stands head and shoulders above everything. With all the interpretations that people have written, have you read many of them? And if so, what do you think of them? Well, the song is, is fun, you know. It's, it's funny because the 1960s, people got so serious. The one thing I loved about the Beatles is that they were so artistic, but they were also having a good time. Uh, most of the folk people, and I, I'm, I am not a folk singer, but I love folk music, but I'm not really, I wouldn't qualify as a folk singer, but I love folk music. But they got so self-important and so pompous 
And here come the Beatles, who are infinitely more talented than most of these artists who were at the Newport Folk Festival, and they were having a lot of fun. Part of the song was that it was just fun, and it was fun to hear people, (laughs) you know, root around and try to find different meanings, because it was all meant to be fun. So I don't read the meanings, but what I do love are the parodies that people do. There was one when the NASDAQ stock market went down called The Day the NASDAQ Died, which is a (laughs) classic. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then, of course, Weird Al's parody, The Saga Begins, that was marvelous. And there have been probably 20 other ones. I had the opportunity to interview Lori Lieberman, and she talked about the incredible emotional response she had from your song, Empty Chairs. So I wanted to talk about that song. What is it like to receive such an emotional response from people, from something that you wrote? You know, I was never really cut out to be in show business. What I wanted to try to do was just the best thing that I could do. And I don't know if you've noticed, but most of my songs are all very different from one another. Really different. And that was one of the things that I was shooting for, was to try to create a new concept every time I wrote a song. To be quite frank, I was oblivious to everything except what I was doing. And the most important thing was to make records because, and and, you know, I didn't know whether I would go over well on records or not. I didn't know whether my voice would record well or not. I didn't know what would happen. So when something like the Killing Me Softly thing happens, it's just a a sort of a total from left field type of a thing which is very complimentary and it's a wonderful thing to know that she was thinking of me and they were thinking of me when they wrote the song and when the song was recorded but again it's just totally from left field i read a quote from you where you were talking about your song vincent and you said the essence of the artist's life is his art what was it about the print of van gogh's starry night that struck you well, first of all, I had decided that I wanted to write a song about about him. It was a really kind of basic kind of a thing. I, I figured, you know, I would just write using the most famous painting. And as I was looking at the painting, I realized that something occurred to me, which was that this is him. It's not his painting. It is him. Just like my songs are me. They're not just something I do. See, most people do something. You know, they go and get the car fixed, or they walk the dog, or they, you know, read the paper. But an artist puts what he is into his art, and even without the artist, he lives on because it is him. So when that very obvious realization hit me, then I started to just, you know, tell the story and write the song looking at the imagery, and it just wrote itself, which sometimes happens. In your opinion, what makes a good song a good song? Well, that's just my opinion. And I think Cary Grant uh, says uh, in in Monkey Business, uh, Marilyn Monroe says that's a silly song. And he says, well, in my opinion, your opinion that that's a silly song is a silly opinion. So, uh, you know, my opinions are just my opinions, and they're probably silly. But you have to have a sense of what a beautiful melody is and what a real lyric is, which at least for openers means that there should be some kind of rhyme, you know, either internal or somewhere. 
the song should be something that you want to hear again. I mean, that, that I think is really what sums up a good movie or a good song. You know, you may watch many movies or documentaries, but you don't want to see them again. You don't want to see the movie again. But some movies you want to see a thousand times, and it's the same thing with songs. I think some, some songs you just can't get enough of. You finish it and you want to start again. And I think that's also an indication of whether a song is a good song. Well, you just a second ago, you said documentary, and I've heard that there's a Don McLean documentary forthcoming. Yes, it's going to be a PBS fundraiser and a full-on documentary, which will be in theaters, called American Troubadour. And it's being filmed by Jim Brown, who's a famous, a very successful documentary and film maker. And when will that be out? March of next year. Okay. With all the songs of yours that have been covered, could you pick a favorite cover that another artist has recorded of one of your songs? Uh, yes, I like the uh, Fred Astaire version of Wonderful Baby. I wanted to also ask you about the song Crossroads. Was that song autobiographical? No, I don't think so. I was in a very peculiar place in my life in the 1970s and a lot of adjusting was going on and there's a lot of pain I guess to making these kinds of adjustments so a lot of that came through in my songs probably made them a whole lot better than they would have been otherwise so there's probably some of that in there but I was thinking more about America really because the, the American Pie album the idea of my albums was, and again, I say was because I'm not making albums anymore and I'm not really writing songs anymore for albums because the music business has basically disappeared as I knew it and I don't really want to participate in what there is there now. But I've made many albums, so if someone decides they like what I do, they can spend a long time finding different records that I've made. The idea of the album is that one sort of overall concept, but then there are a lot of songs that you might not figure how they might fit in with that, but if, but they fit in sort of tan, on a tangent rather than directly. You know, if, if somebody does a concept album, Moonlight Sinatra, there'll be every song will say Moonlight, Moonlight Serenade, The Moon Was Yellow, you know, and on and on. Well, that's not my concept albums, and they all are concept records from the point of view I just described. Well, on that note, the one song, The Grave, what inspired that song? That was a dream I had. I suppose when the, the army was breathing down my neck trying to draft me, I guess that was written or later, I forget, after I'd been rejected by the draft. That was a dream. I dreamt it and woke up and wrote the song. I wanted to ask you about Sister Fatima. Listening to the lyrics of that song, it it made me wonder, are you a man of faith? I was brought up a Catholic, but I'm not a Catholic. My father was Protestant. My mother was Catholic. I think my father probably had as much of an influence on me in a negative way toward religion as my mother tried to have on me in a positive way toward religion. So in the end, I feel that probably um, I'm not religious in that I do not believe in religion. But I do believe in God. I believe in, I'm, I guess I'm a pantheist of some sort. I love, I believe that it's all around you in nature and everywhere and harmony. And, you know, you're either improving or you're not. 
you know, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You really don't stay static. And as we move along in life, many tests reveal to us and to others where we are and how we might be better. Sister Fatima was uh, written because I found a circular on the top of the set of steps going down to take the subway in New York. And I put it in my pocket and uh, wrote the song, just pretty much what was said on the circular, all the things she would do for you. What is the best thing about being Don McLean? Uh, having a great wife and two terrific children. I don't think my life would amount to much if I didn't have my family. And my wife really is the person that keeps that together and has provided that. I've done my part, but, you know, a woman is very vital to the raising of children and staying together in a marriage, which is very hard to do, uh, but it hasn't been hard for me, and I hope it hasn't been hard for her, is really important. So we have two kids in college now, and they're doing quite well. So that's my greatest achievement, really, uh, because that's the one that eludes a lot of people, you know, who may find success in business or in the arts. It's the tough one. It's the big one, really. I have one final question for you. For anyone who's listening to this broadcast, wherever they are, we have listeners from all over the world. What would you like to say in closing to all those people? I would like to say that I think that we should be very skeptical of technology, and especially the kind of technology that we, that we have today, and that I would advise people of all ages to not stare at screens if possible. It's very difficult not to, but to look around at the natural world and try to avoid the virtual world that seems to be closing in on us very quickly because of this very rampant and all-consuming technology that seems to be here now. Well, Mr. McLean, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. For more information on Don McLean, you can visit don-mclean.com, don-mclean.com, or go to americanpie.com. For more information or to subscribe to the Paul Leslie Hour, just go to thepaulleslie.com. Until next time. Bop, bop. Dilly bop bop badoo bop zee bock a doodly not boxy key chat a cook a boss a look a boss a neck a book a get a good at a bop doodly son but over that get party gay yeah a zika bock a book a long gone doodly boo goodbye